Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, Lois decided that she wanted a history person. I said, you know, what is my job description? She says, help everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is a civic treasure, literally, the city of Chicago's cultural historian emeritus, Tim Samuelson. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, gosh, friend, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You recently retired from this job you love so much, but you didn't. You still have your <laughs> office at the Cultural Center. You're still cataloging the items that you so painstakingly collected. You're just doing it now for free. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's very funny because the job I had, which was the city's first cultural historian, um, was too good of a gig to give up. And I never really thought about money. I, I can honestly say that for all of the nearly 20 years I had the job, I never thought about what how much money I was making. <laughs> just the money was never the motive for doing it. And it's kind of like what I've done all my life is kind of the history nerd that you know started as a little kid and here I am almost pushing 70 years old. And tell me how you got started. I mean, the love of history is not exactly ingrained in children. How did it come about for you? It's kind of a mystery that I can't quite explain, but I was attracted as even a little kid to old buildings and objects. My, my parents weren't really big readers or had any kind of resources that encouraged this. So I was kind of on my own. And of course, the thing that surprised me is a special part of my what I was you know interested in and really and kind of passionate about is buildings and architecture. And particularly, I became acquainted with the work of architect Louis Sullivan. And my grandmother used to get the Reader's Digest magazine. And I remember picking up a magazine. Remember, I couldn't read the story, but there was a picture of Carson Peary Scott. Now, Target State in Madison, the great masterpiece of Sullivan. And I was attracted to this picture. And I asked my grandmother about it. She says, oh, that's where I buy my stockings. And I said, oh, will you take me along? So I went with her, fell in love with the building. Well, the story always stuck with me. And somebody actually researched the uh, date of the story. And it was... 1958. So I was seven. So I guess I started pretty early. And then it just went from there. I 
watched how my mother got onto the uh, CTA to go downtown. I memorized it, and I would go down as a little kid in grade school, even though I would be forbidden to do so. And I would explore and look at buildings and go to the library. And so it just kind of happened. You uh, badgered your mom at the age of nine to take you downtown to see Lewis Sullivan's Garrick Theater before it was demolished in 1960. How did you convince your mom to take her nine-year-old downtown? Did you make up some story or what'd you do? Well, I did because I really, I mean, I, there were stories that the Garrick was going to be torn down and it was in the newspapers and I was heartbroken about it. But I kind of realized I needed to make a kid subterfuge to say why I wanted to go. Because I didn't think saying I wanted to go see this uh, Adler and Sullivan masterpiece would play. So there was a Mr. Magoo cartoon that was playing. It was a feature-length cartoon. It wasn't a very good one. Um, And um, I said I really wanted to see this Mr. Magoo cartoon. And sure enough, I got taken downtown to see it. Well, I was fascinated by the theater. And I even went and did things like with my mom. I said, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. So the movie was on, and I'd get to wander around and uh, got to see the whole theater. And, of course, the theater by that time had been painted in this horrific 1950s color scheme. But when the movie was on, the theater was dark, and you just get these nice flashes of light from it, and the place looked wonderful. And it it sticks with me to this very day. You actually read the newspaper when you were nine years old. If you did, you're a man after my own heart. (laughs) Yeah, I did, actually. We were, no, it it was a Chicago Daily News household. My dad brought it home, and uh, I go through it and I uh, am in the other building that I was attracted to and visited as I was very young was the old federal building and that was going to be torn down and uh, was it went down to the demo site now I was as a kid I was not allowed to cross the busy streets meaning Tui, Western, Howard and Ridge my parents had no idea I was going downtown and uh, wow. so that, it was, but uh, I had a you became time. very good at deceit to well, mask deceit. this love of yours. <laughs> I know because it was it, it, there was something about it where I thought, well, I better kind of keep it low. In fact, what's interesting keep it on the down all, low, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, the outreach is you know, which is really amazingly heartwarming on the, the, the occasion of my so called retirement is amazing but i always thought i was kind of keeping a low profile and that nobody really you know <laughs> was paying attention to what i was doing but obviously that's not the case i mean i'm just a history nerd doing my thing and i've been lucky to be in positions where i had the forum to, to spread the word of historical stories and of course i never wanted to do it to call attention to myself I wanted to be a voice that would give voice to people, places, and events that through time can't speak for themselves. That's the goal. 
When you were in grade school, you complained to the principal of Armstrong School when you learned that they were planning to tear the ornamental sheet metal corniche off the top of the school's exterior, and you won because they repaired it instead, and it's still there today. That's true. And somehow I'd gotten, well, there were contractors that were looking at this. So I'm on the playground. I mean, of course, I would have to say the sad part of my whole situation, as the history nerd that I was, I wasn't the most popular kid on the playground, so it was a pretty lonely existence. But there were some contractors that were there figuring out, when I talked to them, how to tear this beautiful projecting ornamental cornice that was the top of the building off the building. So I remember on the old school lined paper, printing a note, you know, in, in printed letters to the principal saying that this was a terrible thing to do and that they should keep that cornice. And amazingly, they did. Now, maybe there were factors other than my childish letter, but that cornice is still up there. That That's an accomplishment. Your office at the Cultural Center, which you maintain to this day, is like a mini history museum. You've got a pair of handcuffs cuffs that belong to Elliot Ness. You've got a doorknob from Al Capone's office at the Lexington Hotel. You've got ancient floors from the Marquette building, a, a player piano. How did you come to accumulate these items and what made you want to keep these items as opposed to others? Well, it started as a kid and uh, I always kind of had, I mean, I know better, but I feel that historical objects kind of have a vibe to them that connects you to another time. I mean, they're just physical plane objects, but I started to save souvenirs, uh, you know, that I could take home with me. And I kind of felt it gave me an attraction. In fact, going back to my grade school days, when I used to go with the list and visit all of the historic, uh, you know, old skyscrapers, one of the things I did was I took a basket along and I went to each building and I asked for the building carpenter. And in those days, they were like switching all the locks to modern locks. Well, the doorknobs were custom designed for every specific building. They were designed by the architects. So I would go to the building carpenter and ask if they had an extra sample of the doorknob. And they always did. They had lots. They were scrapping them. And I would go from building to building until the basket got too heavy for me to carry anymore. Then I had to go home in Rogers Park. I'd take the L home. And I couldn't explain these doorknobs, how I got them, because my parents didn't know I was going downtown. So I would hide them. Oh I, I mean, how, how do you explain uh, the appearance of these exotic doorknobs in the house without blowing my secret gig of going downtown? So They might have it, thought it, you were a home invader or something. Or something, yeah, going through it. And, and um, or so I'm very proud of the fact that I always got every doorknob legitimately. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for the building carpenter and got them. But then as I got older and my lift capacity got better, things got bigger. They were offered to me bigger and bigger and bigger. And soon I was going downtown, you know, when I was older and I'm lifting huge terracotta blocks at wrecking sites and, um, 
you know, it it accumulated. But also, it wasn't just architectural things. There were historical things through, you know, odd circumstances, almost too long to explain here. I wound up with what are well-documented Elliot Ness's handcuffs. And um, part of the fun I've had with something like that is sharing them. And if you go to a museum, you they're behind a glass case and you have to look at them. And you can't make that vibe connection with them. So I know that like Elliot Ness's handcuffs, they're made out of materials that they're durable and sturdy. They sit out in my office and when people come visit me, I let them try them on. And Has anybody not? ever got locked in? Well, I always worry about that. But I'll always say, you know, these are really old. They've always worked. Uh, and here's the key. But uh, there even is a little part of apprehension. I even had cases where um, parents brought their kids in who were doing history fair projects. And we're doing Al Capone or Elliot Ness. And, of course, we would lock the kid in the handcuffs and we'd take their picture. And they, it seems like I'd always get letters later saying, well, they won the first prize of uh, history fair. <laughs> so you've, uh, been, you've been credited with helping save many buildings also that it would have been lost otherwise, including the old Chess Records headquarters in Chicago and several spots in Bronzeville vital to jazz and black history. How did that happen? Well, one of the things that always was interesting to me were historical topics that were overlooked or ignored. And in some cases, it was issues of, you know, what's, what's you know, sad realities of the city, of racism and uh, urban disinvestment. And I was fascinated with buildings on the uh, south side as a kid still in grade school and I would be in Bronzeville, which was having challenging times uh, at, at, at the time. But there are buildings that I found and I truly loved. And when I finally got a job to work for the Landmark Commission and uh, gee, I can remember, I can remember every date of old things, but not my own, <laughs> my own history. But uh, in the 1980s, I pushed for uh, many of these buildings to be landmarks to protect them. So there were many of the buildings that were built uh, by the early business entrepreneurs of Bronzeville. Like, you know, the stories of Bronzeville were always focused on music, and it's an amazing music history, and those buildings need to be protected. But the early black-owned banks and insurance companies and entrepreneurs, those buildings were being ignored. In fact, some of them were actually abandoned on the verge of demolition. So I not only pushed to make them a landmark, and I got all kinds of flack because the Landmark Commission had never undertaken you know, an abandoned building before. And then I would just go anyone I could talk to to convince the, 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 these buildings should be restored. And actually, every one of them ultimately was restored uh, except for one. In fact, there's even cases of where I went personally and boarded some of them up. Wow. What was the one exception? No, actually, it was the one, one of the or actually got me started, broke my heart that it got torn down. 
is um, I was very interested in, of course, as a, as a nerdy little kid, I would go to the resale stores and I would buy old 78 RPM early jazz records. And so I was interested in jazz and particularly Chicago jazz and ragtime. So there was a ragtime composer who actually, you know, at one time worked with the great Scott Joplin, came to Chicago. He was the musical director of the Pekin Theater, which was 27th and State, the first black owned and operated and uh, with an acting company of all African-American performers and owners. Uh, he was the music director. He wrote the music for the changing shows. And he writes a song called Lovey Joe. And Lovey Joe gets a, heard by Flores Zigfield of the Zigfeld Follies in 1910. Yeah. And he thought that this was the perfect song to introduce a new star, Fanny Bryce. Wow. So, so <laughs> Fanny girl. Bryce. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she, so she sang it, and of course she became a star. Lovey Joe became a best-selling piece of sheet music. Uh, Jordan wrote some other pieces that had some good Broadway uh, appearances. And with his money, he became what was essentially the first black real estate developer in Chicago and built a building called the Jordan Building on State Street. And that one was abandoned, was terribly vandalized. And that was high on my list. And of course, down the street was the Overton building that was built by Anthony Overton, who had a cosmetics manufacturing company, all staffed by African-Americans, a newspaper, and money. but anyway, it was all of them. But in pushing to save the uh, Jordan building, in fact, Alderman Alderman Bobby Rush at the time had a fence put around it to protect it because people were stealing bricks, salvage bricks from it. And then one day I get the word that the building had collapsed into the street and it literally uh. there was no hope for it. So all I could do was pick up the pieces. And of course, one thing that I'm delighted with is a piece of the Sullivan-style ornament, although Sullivan didn't design the building, from the Jordan building, is on display in the main atrium of the Art Institute of Chicago, and another piece of it is at the Smithsonian in Washington. So wow. Joe Jordan gets his credit in some really public places, but I was just scrounging these pieces out of the rubble. Your job was created by visionary leader Lois Weisberg. She is the former cultural affairs commissioner who brought us Gallery 37 and Cows on Parade. Tell us how that happened and the team that she put together that included a culinary person, a fashion person, a literary person, someone from visual arts and music, and a history guy, you. Oh, Lois. I mean, ugh. I mean, I swoon just thinking about her. And of course, she was like 82 years old when she gave me the job. And I still swoon. She was the longtime head of the Chicago Cultural Center and the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs. And she was brilliant in thinking of, you know, things that would engage the public. And she knew there were different disciplines of uh, culture and uh, um uh, processes that she wanted to share with you. So she tried to build a team 
of people who were experts in these disciplines, but weren't your typical kinds of people. In fact, in some ways, we were in many ways kind of the outsiders in our own enthusiastic nerds in our own way with this you know, desire to share the information. So she has building up a team that included of someone who was doing culinary arts and uh, did programs on culinary history, which I even uh, participated in, like a tour of the history of Chicago pizza, which is one of my research specialties. And uh, there was a fashion person. There was a literature person. And of course, the Cultural Center always has had amazing programmers in art for art exhibitions and music programming. And the beauty of it is, is the Cultural Center is not like a, what would be considered a formal museum, like the Art Institute or Chicago History Museum. So we didn't have to kind of go by the formality uh, that these uh, that older established institutions kind of have as part of their kind of their cultural vibe, and so this team could present our different disciplines in really interesting, you know, creative and sometimes edgy ways. Well, Lois decided that she wanted a history person. I got called down. Actually. Um, I got called down to the Department of Cultural Affairs Christmas party, and Lois took me aside into a side room and says, I, you know, I'm building this team. I want to have a history person. You're the person for the job. Would you like to do this? And I got the job. And of course, the thing I'm really proud of is Usually when you're you know, doing a, uh, filling out a personnel or a form for the city of Chicago, there is a job description. And usually they want it to be some wordy thing, but Lois in her typical spirit. She, I said, you know, what is my job description? She says, help everybody. Hmm. And, and she gave you the to freedom to create exhibits and talks and programs on topics you've been obsessed with. What a wonderful gift she gave you. You bring them to life. What are the topics you're so obsessed with? Oh, my. Uh, it's very. So, so certainly architecture with, with Louis Sullivan. Talk about obsession. And, uh, of course, I my mentor was the, uh, Richard Nickel, the famous photographer and Sullivan historian, who actually I met as a teenager, and he took me around to the demolition sites where, when a building was to, a Sullivan building was to be demolished, we would uh, measure the floor plans, and I, he would photograph the building, so at least there was some record a record of it. And then when the building got torn down, we picked up the pieces. I was always interested in, in Chicago's uh, music, particularly the music of Bronzeville. And I was into that as a kid, finding the old records and then visiting the sites of the buildings where the actual recordings were made. Uh, what were the homes of some of the, the, uh, the, the greats of Bronzeville and visiting um, those there are even things that kind of were interesting that I found. I never really obsessed about Chicago's criminal history, but it's very much a part of it. And so I, you know, did had, had done research and interest and things were accumulated 
by that. One of the things I do not have on my resume, and I don't talk about much, is I was actually brought in, the city was trying to encourage filmmakers to film in Chicago in the 1980s. And I was brought in to advise the producers of what was an infamous show, The Secret of Al Capone's Vaults, featuring Geraldo Rivera. Oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> where, where, they, they, where Geraldo Rivera, early in his career, they had thought that there were these sealed up vaults in the, uh, Capone's old headquarters. And I actually told him on camera in an interview, you know, and he said, well, how do you tell what's in here? And I said, you have to look at the layers of history. And I said that um, what you have here are sealed up sidewalk vaults. It's not like a vault. This is what you have in Chicago under sidewalks where they kind of stole space under the sidewalks. I said, and then they started to leak and they sealed them up. And I said, what you've got here is Chicago sidewalk. And, and what are you going to what are you going to find? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Geraldo, absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and you were right, as usual. <laughs> but they ran the show where it started out saying, and our story starts with Tim Samuelson of the Chicago Landmarks Commission, who verifies <laughs> that artifacts, because they did have old bottles that were like laying in that vault, you know, are from the Capone era. So it almost sounded like I was saying it was for real. And, and I said, in fact, I saw that live and I thought, what the? <laughs> Let, let's talk about Chicago history for a second. The disasters, which ones stand out in your mind? We've had the Iroquois fire, the Eastland disaster, Our Lady of Angels, the Loop Flood. What, which ones really stand out to you? The one, well, the one that I talk about the most is the, of course, the, the Great Chicago Fire of 18. 71. And of course, I've even had cases in my old nerdy self when they do excavating of where areas on the lakefront where they push the rubble into the lake, you know, looking for artifacts. And sometimes I find them. And what I find um, really resonant of the Chicago identity in the story of the fire is how when the fire was burning, how people improvised to save themselves and in some cases save the stuff out of their houses. And there is, you know, really heroic stories of people persevering. And then how the city, even in the case of some a, a disaster that leveled the downtown, large part of the immediate north side of Chicago, was able to immediately pull itself together and rebuild. Because the thing that made Chicago great was the central location by the lake, which is part of lake transportation and railroads all coming together. The railroad tracks coming in weren't destroyed. The lake was still there. And so Chicago was able to get what it needed pretty much to rebuild quickly and then rolled up its sleeves and just rebuilt. So it's very much a part of this kind of scrappy city, which I always found interesting because the people who live here historically all came from other places. And part of the reason they came here is that um, there were no set rules because you didn't have people from any one particular place and culture. You could improvise. In fact, that's why so many different uh, disciplines of 
art, music, manufacturing, inventions came out of Chicago because you could try something new here and there was nobody here telling you not to. If you succeeded, you could do great. If you didn't, well, then either that's the end of that or you try again. That's what Chicago is all about and what makes it different is a very independent mindset that you could, if you had a vision, you wanted to try something, you could do it here. And of course you were on your own if it would make it or not. But what we did here in terms of architecture, music, which the old established communities out East would say, Oh, look at the crazy things they're doing in Chicago. You know, laugh at Frank Lloyd Wright. And, uh, jazz is a bunch of noise. Uh, and then suddenly the influence of all these things found their way into their old state traditions. So that's the, it's almost like a subversive fun of how this Chicago spirit comes up with new things that really irritates and perplexes the old guard. And then suddenly we quietly invade the old guard and change their way of doing things. So we can just go. And then we have, of course, political disasters and racial strife that we've never seemed to be be able to overcome. Uh, Martin Luther King coming here to protest unfair housing, the Nazis at the federal building, the 1919 race riots, the 68 riots at the convention, the Pullman Porter strike, uh, on and on. What stands out for you in terms of political or racial disasters or strife? Racial strife, of course, is laced uh, in embedded in the city. And uh, of course, the thing that I uh, will freely say in any lecture is I will tell the stories of the of the inequities and the abuses that uh, both political forces are a part of in creating uh, many different uh really t- terrible situations in Chicago and is it over absolutely not and um, will it ever be I, over I, 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 no and I well I always hope by telling the story and laying it out to hope some things will sink in it's gonna take time and it's taking time in fact, I would have to say in regard to what we're talking about in, ter- in, in terms of uh, you know bad political, uh, uh, environments, racism, inequity. When Lois Weisberg first offered me that job, the title was supposed to be Curator of Chicago. And I gave pushback to Lois because I said, there's a lot of things that happened in this city historically and still go on today. And I don't want to be considered a curator that's in any way responsible or affronting for it. I want to just tell the story as it is. So the name was changed to cultural historian because um, a curator is somebody who, you know, kind of looks after uh, uh, situations and things and oversees it. And somebody, there's a lot of things I am not proud of. But I do hope through history and example and getting those out there in a really understandable way that it can be its own contribution to chipping away at these terrible situations, mindsets, and uh, uh, 
bad directions of culture and improve things. That's very yeah, it's much the old story mind. about if you if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? That's true. And 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 also I I really try hard to make the way I tell history accessible to everybody so that this lesson will uh, go to as wide an audience as possible. Uh, one of the things I've done with my, it's, it's kind of a running joke, but a lot of my exhibits at the Cultural Center were done on a first floor corridor that leads to the public bathrooms. And I love having my exhibits there. Like I did one called Bronzeville Echoes, which was about African-American music tradition in Chicago, which also called attention to issues of, of inequity, racism, and, and, and challenges. Put it on the wall. And I would say that corridor by the bathrooms at the Cultural Center is the most trafficked place yeah. in the building because people come off the street because they know that there's a free bathroom there, but there aren't a lot right. of them. And then people get it. In fact, it's fun. When I put up an exhibit, I often will spend time watching how people react to it and see what people are attracted to and spend time with what people. And that, that kind of helps me plan my shows. But there'll be people, you know, with their kids in their strollers and are coming in to use the, 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 the washroom and whatnot. And uh, or people are cutting through that corridor on a cold winter day because it's a warm passage to get from Washington to Randolph Street. And they see these exhibits. And I try to make them so that an academic who is really into the serious academic documentation will hopefully get some interesting new perspectives and insights that they'd find interesting. But I also just like the idea of people who aren't necessarily into uh, history or these topics will come in to use the bathroom or to get warm. And, and learn something. These stories and, and, and make it in a way that it's interesting and uh, uh, in, in, in a way that it'll attract their attention. So... It'll last you for showbiz to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tim Samuelson, thank you so very much for joining us. As a kid, your dad took you aside and said, this history stuff is well and good, but what are you going to do for a real job? I would dare say you've had a real job and you continue it to this day, and we thank you for that. And we will see you all next week. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. 